everybody. Welcome to Making It, a weekly podcast about how to build a great business, produced by Enterprise. Your 6am briefing on finance, business and economics in Egypt. This season is brought to you by CIB, the partner of choice for CEOs and leaders of businesses at all stages of their growth stories. By the United States Agency for International Development, which has a 40-year history of inspiring Egyptian success in partnership with the government and the people of Egypt. And by EFG Hermes, the leading financial services corporation in frontier emerging markets, helping businesses realize their full growth potential. Your host today is Hashem, Enterprise's Executive Editor. So at this point, if you haven't heard the story of Azafahmi, then you probably need to crawl back under the rock you've been in for 30 years. The abridged version of the story is this. Azafahmi took the traditional male-dominated handicrafts work of Upper Egypt and turned it into a global jewelry luxury brand. What's little known, however, is how the Azafahmi brand has grown to become one of the great matriarchies of the Egyptian business world. The torch has now been passed down to her daughters, Fatma Ghali, the managing director, and Amina, the creative and design guru. The responsibility of carrying the legacy forward and the challenge of maintaining its success is a pressure any generation that has inherited a company has to go through. But on top of that, the new generation has to deal with a set of new problems that the trusted manual has not accounted for. In Azafahmi's world, these range from keeping up with jewelry designs and setting some new ones, to dealing with copycats, managing marketing in the social media age, and maintaining quality of products that are now challenging some of the leading luxury brands of Europe. Here to tell us about the balancing of the old and the new, and the challenges of taking a brand forward without compromising the founder's vision, is Fatma Ghali. We'd like to start off by asking you about your childhood, specifically the toys and games that you played. So, so tell us about that. We did a lot of sort of creative, and I say creative now, but it was more of like drawing on the walls and uh, really making a mess out of all of our rooms and, and everything we had. But I think we, we both had a lot of creativity. So we did a lot of arts and crafts and a lot of stuff with our hands. And that had nothing to do with your jobs going forward. But, which is, yeah. It, yeah, I want to say it's crazy, but obviously the seed gets planted at that stage. Also, I sort of grew up because my mother was working, my aunt was working, I'm very close to my aunt, my father was working. So a lot of the time we spent with them at work. So I'd go to the workshop, Amina, my sister and I, and we'd bead necklaces or we'd sort out the stones. So we did a lot of little jobs, but they were all very sort of with our hands. Right. And I think that definitely impacted where we both are today. No, I was just going to ask you about how did like your involvement with the business start? And I guess very, very early on. Very early on. I officially started in 2000, but I've sort of started since I was a little kid. So you grew up with it. Exactly. I mean, we we grew up, we we would help our mom, we'd go to exhibitions, we'd sort of put the price tags, help in the selling. In the summers, we'd go to our workshop. We really grew up with it. Even today, our... uh, our Did you fall in love with the business early on, like because of that? Because it was just, you were doing so many things as a kid. It's almost as if I never thought about it. It's like family. You're in love with family without even thinking about it. They're there. And that's how the business is. It's like I grew up in it. And my mom at a certain point said, you know, you can do whatever you want. At some point in time, I thought I'll be an architect. My father's an architect. I loved architecture. But I naturally fell into the business. And, And it came naturally to me. I think it obviously has something to do with growing up in it. But then I always saw what Amina and I could add to it. So we saw how it could be different for us. 
right? So to those who don't know, Fatma is the CEO and Amina leads design. She's right our now. creative director. So you, the both of you were you were saying like, you know, growing up the creative side and playing around that kind of helped uh, your involvement. So who was it that drew the straw <laughs> to be the CEO was, and yeah. who was it that continued to have fun yeah. and design and, and yeah, live? like how I did that happen? I got the short end of the... <laughs> yeah. No, but growing up, I thought I'd be the one on the creative side of things. So I actually finished school and I went to college and I studied art, history and painting. So I did my bachelor's in oil painting, thinking that I would join the sort of the design side of things. But when I was at school, I, I joined the company in the marketing and sales department. And something in that pulled me very much. And I just naturally started developing in the management side of things, even though I was studying art. But then what I realized when sort of a few years down the road, that there is a lot of creativity in management, right? especially yeah. in a brand like ours. It's all about creativity. So creativity is at the core of, and it's one of our values. It's how do you do everything creatively? You were talking about how you got involved through the marketing side of things. And honestly, that's one of the big successes of the Azza Fahmi brand is marketing strategy, how you took something traditionally Egyptian and made it a successful brand abroad. Can you walk us through that? We actually heard that you had spearheaded this. Yes, but I spearheaded it because for me, it was the natural progression to where we were. I saw how much potential was there and I realized that we have something to offer and we don't necessarily need to offer it just to our Egyptian market. We need to go beyond that and not even to the regional market, which my mother had already been quite well established in, but even taking beyond that. And for us, it's also a message, you know, it's saying it's not these what they call soft powers. It's sort of saying that, no, Egypt has a lot more to export. And it's, it's showcasing Especially our Especially since 2016, like that's exactly. been the focus of policy is how do we maximize exports? Exactly. And so it's through food, it's through design, it's through art, it's through literature. And that's really what other people connect to. People connect to people. People connect to something that touches their lives. And so this is part of what we believe in doing. So how do you pull it off? We're still pulling it off. It's, it's a process, but for us, we always believed in our product. So if you have a strong product, which we know we do, it's then about taking the right steps. I don't want to say right because there are no right steps, but taking the steps that could lead to where you want to go. So for us, it was going to Europe. And this is sort of the center of excellence for luxury. That's where the luxury market is. It's not in Egypt. It's not in Africa. It's not in the Middle East. You need to sort of get that stamp of approval from Europe. So we started working on that. We focused on the UK market, London especially, and sort of working, doing a lot of partnerships to get to understand the market, but start to be known in the market. And then that led to us opening our first flagship store in London uh, two years ago in Mayfair. We've worked 10 years before that for that step to happen. We want to ask, we kind of want to lift the hood off the car a bit and look at, you know, the nuts and bolts of the operation. So walk us through your business model. Everything from like how you produce, how you built up this economy of scale, all the way to like putting okay. it on display. There are two, th two ways about this. So first of all, I think we're quite clear on our vision and our strategy, right. especially as partners and as a management team. I mean, we have a very strong team and we honestly would not have been here today without our team. So that vision is very clear to all of us where we so want to go. So it start with building a great team. Definitely. And for me, that was one of the priorities when I came into the business because I realized my mother was still doing everything herself. And that's a waste of a resource. She's our designer. If she's involved in marketing and in finance and in sales, then we're losing the most valuable asset. Especially when the company is growing, like at some exactly. point, you know, delegation is key. 
Exactly. So for me, it started with just giving her, focusing on making her just design. But that ended up by us creating it a team, creating a structure, creating sort of an institution that can run and that's not dependent on one person. Right. So that's one direction. I think the other thing is if I take you through the operations, like you're saying, it's for us, it starts with a, with a design concept. So it's a two-year process for us to launch a collection. And I think following a collection is, is a nice way to get exposed to the whole business. So the design team comes and says, okay, this is the theme. This is what we're doing. This is the theme. But that's a collection that's launching in two years. And then the process starts of the marketing being involved, where they develop a marketing brief, the sales team being involved, telling design what they're looking for, and the process of developing the design, the prototyping and going to production all the way to the launch. The most important thing to take in mind is knowing our markets and knowing who we're selling to, where we're selling what. Right. Because as the markets develop, they, they have very different tastes. Our Dubai client is not exactly the same like our London client, not like our Cairo client. There's a lot of overlap. So they share the same values, but each one is looking for something different. So are you seeing growth on a regional level, on a global level? Where is growth coming from? Our fastest growing channel is online. Right. It's still quite small, but in terms of growth percentages, that's the fastest growth we're seeing. And that's also where we're really focused in terms of investment. Right. In pushing that further. We're seeing a lot of growth in the region, in the Middle East, and we're seeing a lot of growth in London. We're also seeing growth in our local market, but each one is growing differently in a different price point with a different sort of client mix. So each one is very interesting to look at separately. Right. What are the obstacles you feel that are facing Azza Fahmi? The biggest obstacle it is nowadays, it's with our vision of creating this international luxury design house, is what we call country of origin. So if you think of it, when you think of tech startups, if you want to be the next Facebook, you will probably come from Silicon Valley. If you think of amazing cars, they come from Germany. If you think of luxury, well, for the last four to 500 years, it hasn't really moved from Paris and Milan. So it's in France and Italy. So trying to create a luxury brand from outside of these centers of excellence is very challenging because, first of all, the consumer doesn't identify with a made in Egypt luxury brand as opposed to a made in Italy shoe or a made in France leather bag. Secondly, the ecosystem isn't there. The team that you're working with needs to be developed. The craftsmen, we're now actually just launched our vocational school where we're training craftsmen because one of our challenges is trying to find the right craftsmen. And then also all the supporting industries. So our PR agency is in London. We work with creative agency that's in Paris. Actually, it becomes very challenging to create it and to convince the consumers that luxury can come from outside. So right. even in the US, they don't, no one has made it to the level of Chanel, Vuitton, Dior, Gucci. No one is there. Absolutely. So even the bigger brands that are trying to make it, they don't, there's a barrier it's a challenge, but it's a challenge that we want to take on. Right. But do you not see that there is now, like, and not just in Egypt and with Azafahmi, but there is this, like, emerging markets are starting to come up now. And Absolutely. they are pushing that dominance that you're saying has been 400, 500 years. Like, I was watching a documentary on Netflix the other day about how China is starting to challenge French dominance in wine. And you would never think Have that thought. China would do that. So are, are you noticing that? Like, the, and are you part of that? People are ready for that. People want something different. People want to hear a different story. Right. So there's also a readiness from the market. And that's what we're trying to do. It's a very fine balance between being from Egypt and knowing our DNA and what we stand for, but also playing the international game and being present in those markets. 
it's that constant balance between both to really make an impact on the international market. You were talking about how part of that process was developing the craftsmanship and the quality. How do you manage to ensure the quality of the product now that you're a global brand? It's a long process. So the quality of the product is, first of all, it's from a design perspective, we have a very strong team, not just our creative director and our chief designer, but we also have a very strong team internally and externally. So we work with a lot of trend forecasters. We work with stylists. We want to make sure that from a design perspective, our product is of top quality. So that's on the design side. And then if we go into the manufacturing side, there's a very rigorous process of quality control. So it starts at material preparation. The product gets checked. It gets checked again when it's in semi-finished stage and it gets checked again at, at the last stages. And then another thing we do is we assess quality post once it's in retail. So what are our levels? How much do we get maintenance? And that's a number we're constantly challenging ourselves. Do you have to maintain products after they go into, the, into retail? We do that. Huh. Maintain in the sense of if it's in retail, sometimes it's just polishing. The silver went a bit darker and that's something we constantly offer. But then we're also So an after sales service. Exactly. I want to look at the, you know, the industry in general and, you know, how do you keep up with these trends that can just shift so easily, especially nowadays? We're a bit lucky with jewelry that it's not as fast as fashion uh, and other things. So jewelry is quite a slow industry. So, for example, we've just launched our Mamluki collection that's inspired by Mamluk art. That's been three years in the making where we worked with curators from the V&A. That won't change. But then we need to be, have a fast response time with shorter collections that we could do or pieces where you're addressing a trend, where, you know, you need to address the market much faster than that two year. That's a challenge we're facing now. Making It is brought to you in association with USAID. For 40 years, the American people through USAID have invested over $30 billion to inspire Egyptian success in partnership with the government and the people of Egypt. Are you a big enough brand at this point that you can just kind of sidetrack all of that by simply creating the trends yourself? You're the ones who set the trends for... In our home markets, definitely. So in Egypt and in the region, definitely. So people wait to see what sort of collection we're going to launch. And then you see a lot of smaller designers being influenced by that. But in the international market, that's not the case. So again, it's that fine balance because we are at different stages in different markets. So in our home market, we're sort of leaders. We're leaders, we're influencers. We sort of pull the market in a certain direction. But we're at a very different stage, at a very early stage in Europe, for example. Right. You guys are working towards that. Definitely, definitely. Um, and, and that's what makes it fun is that you're not stagnant. Right. You know, are you guys, you're, you're where are you challenged. looking at outside of London, out of curiosity? That's a million dollar question. So now oh. we're studying where, where our next step. Definitely, it's more London. Right. So we're still at the very early stages. So it's expanding further into London and into the UK and really sort of leaving that mark in the UK market. But then we're also thinking, so what next? Right. So that's what we're debating now. It's probably going to be another location in Europe. So Paris, for example, or New York. So it's between Paris and New York and and that's sort of the debate. And we also believe a lot in partnerships and collaborations. That's another way where we really change and Who have you been collaborating with? I mean, we've done a lot of collaborations. We've done fashion collaborations. So we've collaborated with uh, Julian McDonald, 
Matthew Williamson and Preen. So that's on the fashion side of things. We've also done some cultural collaborations where we've collaborated with the British Museum, created two special collections for them for exhibitions they've had. That was amazing because then our designers get access to the archives of the British Museum to create a collection for it. That sounds like a lot of fun. It's amazing. It's amazing. But this, can you imagine how you push your design boundaries by this? Working with someone in fashion that's completely where you need to create something that appears on the catwalk, but then creating something for a museum. That's anthropologically significant. Yeah. Exactly. And the one of our most interesting collaborations was with uh, Carm uh, Solar and Carm Build, where we've actually worked on designing their uh, headquarters and their new solar panels. Okay. Which was very interesting. So you're moving into like corporate office uh, design as well? We're or? moving into because when your edge is design and branding, it does not need to stay a jewelry. Interesting. Let's talk further about that because the potential is endless. We're playing with a few ideas at the moment. Uh, Can you share a few? Uh, not uh, yet, no, not but, yet. All right. but but you're going to hopefully see them soon because we're in December, we uh, kickstart our 50th anniversary, which we're celebrating the oh, whole wow, of next Mabouk. year. Thank you. Wow. So next year, all is going to be our 50th anniversary celebration. And part of that celebration, we're looking at launching product, different products in celebration of the 50th. Again, in partnerships with others, but that have the design ethos of Azafahmi. Excellent. I want to get a sense of who do you feel is a competitor for you? In terms of competition, if I put my design hat on and and as a brand and its values, we don't really think of competitors because we believe we're doing something that's very special, that's very unique, and we're sort of on our way doing it regardless of what's happening a bit. But if I put my marketing and sales hat on and you're really trying to do a competitor analysis, today competition, for example, in our London shop, is really everyone in the luxury market. Because if you're walking down the Burlington Arcade, which where we are in Mayfair, you can buy a bag, you can buy sunglasses from Chanel, you can buy a watch from Bell & Ross, or you can come buy as a family piece. So realistically, I'm competing with everyone there. So I want to talk now about a more insidious side of competition, specifically counterfeiting, because oh, that's, that's a big one. That's a huge problem for, you know, fashion, brands, Absolutely. all of that. Has that been a problem for you guys and how have you been addressing it? So it's twofold. We think it's a problem because we would like to protect our customers. So we don't think someone that's buying a fake Haza Fahmi is necessarily our customer, but we don't want our customers to be bothered by the fake sort of products out there. Of course, in places like Europe, the sort of the intellectual property rights has become so advanced that you can go to jail if you're caught with a fake Vuitton bag, for example, you know what I mean? In Egypt, we're still sort of a few steps behind. But what we do, we take that sort of protection very seriously. So we register all our products. So any product that comes out from Azafahmi is protected and patented trademarked. for trademarked. So actually recently, just a few months ago, we, we won two cases against two establishments that copy our stuff. Essentially, it's not about closing down every single one of them, but it's making people aware that this is something that we take very seriously and we are protecting. And what ends up happening is people shy away from doing it so because it got to the point where people would actually take pictures off of our Instagram and our website and use it on their accounts. Digitally, it's much better protected. So we work closely with Facebook. So whenever any page comes up that uses our assets, that automatically gets shut down. But then they keep popping up all the time. But it's something that we're focusing on. It's kind of like whack-a-mole. Exactly. Right. Exactly. But it's something that we're working on very strongly. And we have a huge campaign coming up next year for protection. I sit on the on the board of a design and Egyptian fashion and design council. And the idea is to really strengthen the ecosystem. And part of what we're doing is we're educating people as a council 
on copywriting, on intellectual property, on the value of design and on innovation because you need to innovate. I mean, that's the only way you will really take a step forward. We had, it was a sad, funny story, but one of these copycats attended one of our exhibitions and she went to my mother and she's like, you know, Madame Azza, your designs are becoming so complicated and so difficult. to We can't imitate them as easily anymore. And she was telling her that. Can you imagine? Like This is how little they think they're doing something wrong, right? Exactly. Like, yeah. So she's okay with imitating to the extent of asking us to simplify our designs. So our designs also are becoming quite difficult to imitate. So they're imitating some of our more basic designs, our more complicated design. They're too expensive to imitate. Right. So we're talking about the next 50 years and to get to there, we need to kind of talk about you and Amina and how you kind of inherited this huge legacy. And I just want to start first by asking, were you and Amina kind of groomed to do this? Like, do you feel that? Like, was that exposure intentional, do you think? Like, was, was Azza Fahmi all right? She Probably. has this master plan. I have Probably. these two great creative daughters. I want them in the business. Let's take them from an early age and expose them. Do you feel, like, does it feel that way? Or did you both kind of separately, through your own experiences in life, kind of it's, went away and then decided, no, we're coming We never back to went this. away. So it right. was, uh, so it's probably the master plan, but, but it never felt, no, honestly, it never felt that way. I think it happened organically. I think being a working mom, she had to take us with her. She couldn't leave us sometimes. So we were exposed, whether she liked it or we liked it or not, we were there. And as I told you, my, my path started very organically where I was in art school and I said, you know, I have a lot of time of my hands. I'd like to do something. And so I joined and then I never left. For Amina, if, if she was here, she was actually answering that question recently. And for her, she decided to go to Italy because she had, she finished school early and she was supposed to go to the UK, but they wouldn't take her under 18. So she had a year off and she decided to go to Italy to study jewelry. And she says she went to school the first day. She started working on her first ring and she called my mother and she's like, this is what I want to do. And so for Amina, it was a very clear aha moment. Right. For me, I was sort of organically, very organically found myself in that position. Right. Maybe she was grooming you. Exactly. <laughs> um, part of what you find in succession stories is that the ones that don't work are the ones where, you know, the parents kind of forced Definitely. the kid into it. What advice would you give a company founder who kind of has this dream that I want my kids to pick up where I left off? I'd say giving them room to be themselves in the business. And I think this is something my mother did very well, but she allowed me the space to be myself in a lot of cases. And that meant also doing mistakes and costly mistakes sometimes. But that was part of me finding my space. And I think that was very important. And it's something I sometimes see in other family businesses where the founder is sort of, there's that enforcement, but there's also very much, you need to do it my way which is never the case because each And it generation... will never work. Exactly. Each, every time is different. Every so era is different. So how about like someone in your position? That must have been tough trying to get out of your mother's shadow. It's a long shadow. Definitely. Um, how, how do you get out of it? For me, that took time. Today, I sit here and I'm much more confident in who I am and in what I believe in. But that was a long process. And it goes through ups and downs and it goes through sort of lows where you're not sure who you are, where you doubt yourself. And, and it is a constant tension between both generations. And it's only natural. I was just going to ask you, like, because you and Amina and Azza are all work together. Is there a conflict? 
Do you see, has there been generational conflict course, and friction? Of course, there has been. And I mean, Amina and Aza see it in design, but then I believe that pushes them to develop something very unique. Right. Because Amina came in with a very contemporary, her studies were, she did her bachelor's in contemporary jewelry. And my mother comes from a very traditional school, but then that mix gave an amazing new sort of baby in right. terms of product. A nice merger exactly. of ideas. Exactly. From, right. from a creative perspective. Mm. The good thing is we don't have major conflicts on the dream or the vision, which I think is fantastic. Because if we're not aligned on that, then that doesn't work. Sometimes we're not aligned on the how, but then that's just part of the process because I think we all need to be challenged. Right. And in a luxury business or in a jewelry business, it's all about the long term. So it's not about someone wanting to get the benefit today. It's about that it's a marathon. So again, that's why a lot of luxury businesses are family businesses, because it's a marathon. There are generations after generations. You have brands that have been there for 300 years. You mentioned wine. There are some of the big winemakers are 13 generations and 16 generations. Is that where you see this happening? Like this is going to go down through the family? Hopefully. Yeah. It's what I'd hope for. But then again, if... That'll depend on the kids. Exactly. And if that's not the case, then we need to figure out a way where it lives beyond the family. Right. And there are models and there are a lot of companies that have succeeded in that. So it's just figuring out And will it always model. be metrilineal? Like, uh, uh, not sure. I have a daughter. Invis- so, right. So, <laughs> so you lucked out. Yeah. But what if like, you know, there's a generation of all boys? Fantastic. It's a, it's a male <laughs> dominant industry anyway. It, really? Yes. Actually, my mother was sort of broke that barrier. It's a very male dominant industry. It's very uncommon for a woman to be a jeweler. And yeah, I heard about that. And I actually wanted to ask you this now that, you know, she's kind of broken the barrier, but it's still male dominated. So you and Amina kind of are dealing with similar challenges. I've never felt challenged being a woman. I get asked that questions in different ways, but I've never felt challenged being a woman. I have challenges as a business, but I think if I was a man, I would have had the same challenges. Right. Now with having a family and a daughter and all, I have the sort of life balance, you know, work-life balance, but I've never walked into a meeting feeling, oh my God, I'm at a disadvantage because I'm a woman. That could have come from my mother. I mean, she's a very strong woman. Can someone who isn't part of the family that's working with as a family aspire to one day lead as a family? Absolutely. It's my dream because I don't want to lead forever. Right. It's not actually a dream. It's my vision for the next three to five years to groom someone to lead from the organization today. Right. How do you deal with the pressure of well, having that I legacy? <laughs> <laughs> I don't always deal very well, but again, there are cycles and there are waves. Sometimes I have the strength and sometimes there's a burnout. I think along the way, also you learn that there are tools. So I meditate a lot. I work out. I take time off. But even sometimes all these things are not enough. Do you feel a unique pressure because of this legacy or is it just, you know, regular CEO burden? I definitely feel the legacy burden. It's a responsibility and that responsibility I can never let go of. I don't know how to live without feeling of that responsibility of the legacy. What's next for Azafami? Growth in geographically and growth in expanding beyond jewelry. These are the sort of two parameters. What company do you admire? Gucci. Why? Gucci has been the fastest growing luxury brand in the last three, four years. They're challenging themselves to make it as as the biggest luxury brand. So Louis Vuitton is the biggest luxury brand, but Gucci is almost there. But it's the turnaround in Gucci that fascinates me. And it's the combination of their CEO, Marco Bizzari, and their creative director, Alessandro Michele. When they came together, how they revolutionized the brand. From the design side, where do you guys draw your inspiration? 
From everything. Everything. Like I was telling you, our latest collection is inspired by Mamluk architecture, which is sort of the renaissance of Islamic art. We've also been inspired by poetry. We've been inspired by Um Kulthum. We've been inspired by African body paint. So not just Egyptian. Absolutely right. not. We've, I mean, Victorian jewelry, Ottoman jewelry. It's really global cultures and heritage. So every anything inspires my mother and my sister. They look at the rug, and my sister made a collection that was inspired by Persian rugs once. Oh wow! If you were to pitch your company to an investor, I'm an investor, and I'm sitting here. Why would I invest in Azafami? If you believe in this dream and believe in where we're going and know that we're going to go there, then this is why I think you should invest in our company. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you want to comment or maybe suggest a guest, send us an email at makingit@enterprise.press. That's makingit@enterprise.press. Making It is produced by Enterprise, your morning briefing on business, finance, and economics in Egypt. Subscribe today for free at enterprise.press. Did you like today's episode? Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your shows. Did you love today's episode? Like us or give us a five-star rating and a review to help others discover us. Next week's episode will be out on Friday at 8 a.m. This season is brought to you by CIB, USAID, and EFG Hermes. And that's how we're making it.